This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. Today, our guest is Connie Siskowski, founder and president of the American Association of Caregiving Youth, a Florida-based nonprofit and the only organization of its kind addressing issues across the United States surrounding the silent, vulnerable, and hidden population of children, conservatively estimated to exceed 1.4 million, who provide care for family members unable to manage life independently. Connie is a graduate of the John Hopkins School of Nursing and also has earned a master's in public policy from NYU, as well as a PhD in educational leadership from Lynn University. Among Connie's many honors, in 2009, she was elected as an Ashoka Fellow. We share that experience. And also, Connie was selected as winner of the Purpose Prize. In 2012, Connie's work on behalf of youth caregivers was also nationally recognized when CNN named her as one of its top 10 heroes. Connie, it's a great pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, David. Um, how did you first become aware of this extraordinary hidden population of caregiving youth? I became aware of this population because I was part of it as a child, um, but really didn't realize the lifelong impact. I'm sure it's why I became a nurse. Um, but then in 1998, I went to the first international conference on family caregiving in London and and learned more about the effects on children um, who were presented there. Um, And in the UK, they've been working on this since uh, the early 1990s. So um, that summer, I went on a mission trip with uh, children from my church, and one of the boys' dad had just died, another girl's dad had pancreatic cancer, and other kids were concerned, and I knew, um, having worked at hospice, that there was support available for children when they experienced a death, um, but as healthcare was changing and more uh, technology was being used in the home and people were living longer, there was really nothing available to support children um, who were caregiving. So uh, when I went back to get my doctorate, I did so to have a bigger voice for all family caregivers, never really expecting um, that my ultimate work would evolve around children. So I learned about a a countywide survey that was being conducted by Palm Beach Atlantic University and uh, the school district of Palm Beach County, and it was asking students what helps them learn and what doesn't. And so I met various people and finally had the opportunity to include a family health section on the survey that went to over 12,600 middle and high school students. And um, that work is what revealed um, the prevalence of family health conditions and its academic impact on um, more than one-third of all the students who um, were not completing homework, were missing school, uh, their focus was interrupted. And so um, once 
these compelling results uh, were found. No one really wanted to believe them. Um, but from that point on, I started feeling I need to do something about this. So that's what happened. Can, can you give us a little bit of historical perspective here? You, I think, were involved in creating an organization that was involved in supporting family caregiving that predated the American Association of Caregiving Youth, right? And then the yes, American... Yes, absolutely. So from my, my work in, um, in healthcare um, and then in hospice and home care, I saw firsthand what was going on with uh, different families and how they reacted to illness. And, you know, it's kind of interesting and, and probably applicable for, for many professions. When you're in a particular role, you think, oh, you know, this is this is the be-all and end-all. So, you know, when I was in critical care where you took care of someone for, you know, a few days, you didn't really appreciate that that's just a segment, a, a very short segment of someone's life, and how they manage illness is is longer term. Right. And so um, once I had uh, that perspective and saw how many people were homebound or living alone um, and how they could be helped just by having some support services, um, I was um, waiting to go into a meeting at the National Council on Aging and I read about the Faith in Action program that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was funding at the time. And so um, that was really the genesis for beginning what was called then Boca Raton Interfaith in Action to provide volunteer support services for people who were homebound and caregiving families. So we always help people of all ages and all types of conditions. And so that organization was already in place. Um, and we renamed it Volunteers for the Homebound and Family Caregivers because um, interfaith, as we reached to businesses, uh, really got in the way, and so we needed to take it out of our name. Um, and so that more simply said uh, exactly what we did. And then uh, after my research that I shared and the um, administration on aging funded uh, the first uh, national report called Young Caregivers in the U.S., um, which documented the 1.3 at least million children in the United States. Um, media started paying some attention. And so with the media, then we were able to have um, a visual for people to understand uh, what the children were going through. Mm -hmm. And then in... Um, March of 2006, the silent epidemic was released, and that was a study funded by the Gates Foundation um, through Civic Ventures, and it looked at young adults who had dropped out of school, and of those who dropped out for personal reasons, 22% said it was to care for a family member. Wow, so, big statistic, yeah. So between the visual and the dropout, and now people were concerned about dropout, um, it provided... Um, of you know the momentum to obtain some funding to begin our work of the first um, caregiving youth project in our country. So you started to talk about now the, the demographics of these youth, and I wonder if we could spend a few minutes on that because I think it's really an eye opener, just in terms of, for example, the age range and the gender and the income levels. I think you have some 
pretty good data now uh, describing this population. Could you share some of that with our so listeners? The, the national uh, report reported on children ages 8 to 18. Um, our work um, begins in sixth grade at the age of 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. um, for a child, it really crosses all um, racial and um, uh, barriers or, uh, and all, all types of conditions pretty much following the general population statistics for mm -hmm. illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly... Phenomenon. But but certainly for people who have been impacted by the faltering economy right. or who don't have health insurance or who are um, out of status and, and may not be able to receive uh, services that other people do, um, those are the families and the kids who are most affected. And one of the things that we have seen is that as... As families have moved together and there's more multi-generation households, um, we see an increase in great-grandparent care, but also the care of other relatives, um, maybe through extended or blended families. Mm -hmm. And we have seen uh, children uh, take on this role for multiple family members, not just one. I was thinking as I was looking at some of the videos and reading that actually having good health insurance might actually increase the prevalence of this kind of thing because when someone is able to get a base level of medical care, then they can survive, but they still need tremendous support around them to actually live. Does that is that borne out in your statistics that actually even even where families are well insured, there's still a big role for caregivers? Well, having health insurance is one thing, but having um, long-term health care insurance or having the ability to pay for help at home is right. another thing. Yeah, and very few people would have that kind of coverage. Right. In other words, you can be covered when you're sick, when you're in the hospital, but when you get home and you have some chronic illness and you need ongoing care, there's really no resources for that, so then it falls to the family members. Right, and also if you if you don't have health insurance, um, your hospital stay is probably even less. Right, right, and I'm sure that is this true that the statistics would show that as you move down the economic ladder, this kind of experience of young people gets greater. Is that true? Yeah, it definitely is true because families don't have the resources, and also um, then when you know, they can't pay for medication and go without, um, then their condition may not heal or, or be adequately treated. For instance, um, one of the boys, his, his mom um, was not able to renew her Medicaid, and um, so her, her psychiatric drugs, she went without, and so she wound up getting up in the middle of the night cooking, and so he would wake up and try and get her back to bed, and then he would be tired. Right. You know, who wouldn't be, especially when this goes on for multiple nights? And the kids are not caregiving for six months or a year at a time. It's years. An interesting statistic that was included in the literature on your website was about the number of kids who do this by themselves 
So they're the sole caregiver versus the percentage that are in some way supported by adults. I wonder if you could share that because I was uh, impressed by the fact that there are a fairly large number of situations in which the child becomes really the sole resource for somebody who's sick. Um, there are, and also um, we have um, probably close to two dozen children whose both parents are ill. And, yeah, and so part of, you know, the planning and part of what we're able to do is, is in the process is to look at um, allaying some of the anxiety of, you know, what's going to happen after particularly think about how many more grandparents are raising grandchildren and then the grandparents get sick. And for grandparents to raise grandchildren, the child has already been through one trauma of some sort. And then, you know, there's the fear, what's going to happen to me, which is very normal for any person, but particularly a child who still is, developing and, you know, has self as a concern. Absolutely. Can you paint a picture a little bit uh, in more detail of what kinds of care and services that, that these children are providing to the people in their family who are in need? I, I'm sure it's a very broad range, but anything from like delivering medications, feeding, bathing, what sorts of things do we see these children doing? All of the above, David. So, um, they very much mirror the tasks of adult family caregivers, everything from participating in activities of daily living, which include feeding, bathing, incontinence care, transferring, um, helping with uh, dressing, um, to uh, grocery shopping, to medication management, to having... Uh, responsibility for the care of medical equipment. Um, translating is another thing. Huge responsibility for kids. I wonder, I was curious about your experience in how professionals, medical professionals and support professionals grapple with the reality perhaps when they're doing a home visit or when they're exploring what's happening medically with this uh, uh, adult, well, and then they see, my God, this adult is being cared for by by a child. How? What? What's that like? I mean, it sounds like you've actually been in that situation yourself. Yeah, but um, yeah. one of the the really interesting things is, I mean, we don't advocate that a child should do this, right? Yeah. Um, but the reality is that children are, and it's kind of interesting. Of we this. Um, these past few months, for the first time, we have had medical students work with our program. Um, and they're second-year medical students, so they've done some home visits, and they have created a physician survey um, to gain some knowledge about what physicians think. And, um, you know, none of the physicians think that children should participate and they really have no knowledge that they are. And, but yet it's the reality. And we've run into some barriers in, in even talking to nurses. You know, no one thinks that a child should do wound care. Right. But if there's no one else to do it, then let's, um, let's honor and recognize this child and give them the support that they need 
um, not only in their responsibilities at home, but also in their academic life where they might otherwise suffer. So one of the things that your organization has really shined a light on, I think, is not just the caregiving side of this, the fact that, as you've said, these children are taking up tremendous responsibilities far beyond their years, but then there are consequences of this that they miss out on elements of childhood and perhaps experience mental health challenges, delays in their own education. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, what yeah, the- so we see children sacrificing their health, um, their academics, um, their well-being, and their childhood. And um, what we try and do is work in partnership with the school districts so that we can uh, give the students um, the recognition that they're not alone when they meet many of their peers. And that that in itself helps to allay some anxiety because, I mean, when you're in middle school or really at any time in our lives, how how much do we like being different? Right. And um, then we also equip them with uh, some life skills in terms of problem solving and decision making and self-care and communication. Um, In school, we provide uh, lunch and learn sessions where we bring in resources. And what we've done is utilize the top um, diagnoses of the care receivers so that um, a lot of our information centers around that. It's different each month. And it gives the kids who are enrolled in the program a chance to check in. And it also gives um, the kids who may not have been eligible at the time uh, to enter our program to self-refer and to get other resources. And we're also a resource for the school staff. Mm-hmm. And then um, <clears throat> for families that will allow us, we do a home visit by a social worker. And that allows us to link the families to other community resources, again, that they may not be aware of to help them get access to the support and services that they need. And it also allows us to say, you know, if a family needs respite, if a child needs tutoring, is the home environment, you know, one that can be done safely? Mm -hmm. Um, Do the kids have a computer at home and internet access? Because that's something else that everybody thinks everybody has a computer, and it's just not true. And and more and more education is being done online, and so um, our kids don't have transportation. You know, they can't get to the library. They can't stay after school, and so having these additional academic supports are really important for them. And then we um, provide sponsored activities. Uh, We have a camp, which is an overnight camp, Um, and everything that we do has, um, in terms of activities, is fun and educational, so it is able to give the kids a piece of their childhood back when they're at their school and they learn that they're not alone. That's really neat. When they um, get to meet kids from other schools, it's even neater. And we are really looking forward, um, as our affiliate programs start, to being able to connect the kids with kids of other parts of the country. So awesome. Tell me about 
a little bit more about the support groups. I wonder when you're struggling with a problem and then you discover that there's other people who have the same problem, that's always very empowering. Do you see that the children help each other and in what ways? Um, well, by sharing their stories is one way. Um, by um, kind of normalizing their feelings, uh, frustration is a big one. And so um, another thing that's hard is when you're in charge at home and then you get to school and you're not in charge, you have to respond to an authority figure. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with David Castro and Connie Siskowski, founder and president of the American Association of Caregiving Youth. So these, um, that's fascinating. So these children are mostly in a leadership role at home, and then they have to come into an environment where they are treated as children. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's not really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me also about the respite care. That is seems like such a powerful gift to somebody who is really stressed in caring for someone to be given a chance to take a break and catch your breath and perhaps interact with people who can help you uh, unburden emotionally. But yet that must be very expensive to coordinate. And I wonder how do you do that and how successful is it, the the, uh, ability to provide respite? It's one of... um it's one of the big things that we're really proud to be able to provide. Um, we do it according to family needs and as our funds will allow so that um, those resources as our tutoring resources and of course our resources are limited, but um, <clears throat> we're used when we're able to provide it and we work with a couple of different home health care agencies that give us a discounted rate that um, we do it in blocks of three to four hours. And um, it does indeed give the the family a chance to breathe. Um, One of the families said, um, and their child is is ill, um, that by having the respite that they were able to finally do something as a family and just go to the beach, you know, have a picnic. It doesn't have to be something... Um, major, uh, one of the boys, uh, his grandmother, uh, they moved in with his grandmother who had Alzheimer's disease and the respite that we provided was on Saturday morning so that he and his mom could just go and have wow. breakfast. Wow, that's, that's a great story. Just something that other people would take so, for granted. Yeah, 
And so <clears throat> it's it's uh, the little things that really mean a lot. Are you able to develop with children <clears throat> sort of respite plans so that they know that, hey, if I can make it to such and such a date, I'm going to get a break? Is that how it works out in the <clears throat> programming? or? Well, we uh, we try and provide it once a week or once oh, every two weeks. Oh, that's terrific. So it really does become then part of the child's normal life uh, experiences that they're going to get yeah. a break. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it also, um, one of the boys, his mom had to have surgery, and it was during the uh, Christmas holidays, and he really wanted to go see his dad. A lot of um, our families are not together, and and he felt like he couldn't go see his dad and leave his mom. And so we were able to provide her with help at home so that he could go see his dad. Wow. Connie, tell me, in terms of your experience, when you're shining a light on a problem like this, one of the audiences is always the public sector. And we know we have, you know, there's the public sector, there's the philanthropic sector, and they are part of the audience that's being educated as to the problem. And we know there are enormous resources invested in healthcare and child welfare. And I wonder what's your perspective on how those audiences are reacting as they learn about this population. Are they willing to move resources toward tackling this issue? Is it a struggle? Where does it sit in your mind right now? Well, David, I have yet to see on a foundation um, resource about who they fund that they fund caregiving youth. So it's still very much off of the radar screen, and people still don't fully understand. You know, I liken it to to screwing in a light bulb, and it takes several times of uh, turning for the light bulb to go on. However, because we intersect healthcare, education, and the community, it allows us to um, to seek funding in one of those three areas. And by being a first, we had to prove our model, and um, now that we've done that, for instance, uh, we are funded um, right now by our local United Way. And one of their focuses is, is on education. And we have been able to keep our kids in school and graduate and go on to post-secondary education. And so by having those statistics, it's how we're able to fall under that Terrific. umbrella. So you're solving an educational barrier, in essence, in helping kids progress towards their post-secondary education. Yeah, we're breaking the barriers, but, you know, one of the challenges um, is that a lot of times funders want to see a short-term gain, and for us, we're really transforming lives, and it takes time. Really helping people to understand the nature of what's going on out there, which is uh, that it seems that people don't really understand what the impact of this activity is on on the life of children. Well, it's not only on the lives of children, but it's on our society, because um, if children are able to graduate from high school, then they're able to earn more money, to pay more taxes, they're less likely to have uh, diseases or um, early pregnancies or get involved in crime. Exactly, exactly. Tell me a little bit about how your program is scaling and what your ambitions are for the future. 
Well, David, our ultimate goal is that no child should have to drop out of school uh, because of family caregiving responsibilities. So, as I said, first we had to prove our model, and so now um, we have um, several affiliate um, organizations in different parts of the country who are working on getting their programs established and looking at how it can fit in with what they're currently doing. So, for instance, um, we're in discussions with people in California who are involved in kinship care, and that's the grandparents raising grandchildren segment, and really, you know, beginning to recognize the role of the grandchildren when grandparents get sick. Um, there's an intergenerational school in Ohio, and um, they're looking at their population. Um, in New Jersey, there are several uh, caregiving coalitions, and they're trying to figure out, you know, which area of New Jersey do they want to begin mm -hmm. a pilot in. There's a place in Arkansas um, that is training caregivers, and it's an educational institution, so they want to extend um, their services to children and also see this as an opportunity for children who are currently caregivers to join um, a workforce when they complete. So, the am work. I right that your part of your mission is really to shine the light on this population so that other organizations across the country that are serving youth will think about the importance of providing supports to this population? That that's part of is that well, and, part of your mission? Yeah, and, and really working with us as an affiliate so that it gives us a, a very modest annual fee to help our sustainability, but in turn, we will provide them with the knowledge base and um, handouts and wherewithal that they need to um, go is forward. Is your sense that this problem is more severe or less severe in different parts of the country? Uh, do you have a feeling for that at this point? Are there are there heavy concentrations of this, for example, in urban areas or rural areas, or does your data tell you anything about that? Um, we don't know that exactly, and that's one of the reasons that we really need the national study to um, to be redone because that data was collected in 2004, and it doesn't have it was not a huge sample, but it doesn't have the a geographic distribution. Um, certainly in urban areas, there tend to be more resources available uh, for support services than in rural areas, but in rural areas, there may be more other um, community people and congregations that, that can help to support caregiving families. I'd like to talk for a minute about empathy. As you know, Ashoka is involved in a major initiative now highlighting the work uh, in the area of empathy of fellows around the world. And I think that this project does have a really unique lens on empathy. First of all, of course, the project is showing tremendous empathy for these youth who are in such a tough situation that has a huge impact on their development. But also, when you look at the videos of these children and listen to their stories, I'm just so struck by what you said actually 
in the little miniature conversation we had before we started the interview, that these youth have extraordinary empathy ability. And they perhaps, and I'd like to get you to react to this, that perhaps they have something powerful to teach their peers about empathy. It's almost impossible, I think, not to look at some of the, not to listen to these children and feel incredibly moved by what big hearts they have. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I, um, I really um, see no need to, to try and teach child caregivers. <laughs> they have it, yes. <laughs> they have it. And, you know, so the question is, um, can they be an example? Can they share what they do with um, other students? And I think uh, that is possible, although, you know, there is time limitations. But um, perhaps for children whose um, care receivers have died, um, that that may be a group uh, that we could tap into um, for helping others learn. Uh, one of the things that I believe we have helped uh, some students do is really um, values-based. So um, one of the girls had talked about how um, one of her friends um, called her brother a cripple, her mm. brother who's disabled. And so we've had discussions about, um, well, is that person someone that is a good choice for friends? And so by focusing on some of those values, then you know, is this something that they can carry forward as adults? Right. It's interesting that your programs are based in schools, and is what I'm hearing you say. And I wonder, since you're creating these support groups in the schools, it would seem that there's an opportunity there because as other children who are in the school, who maybe not be in that role, learn about the work that their peers are doing, that may be a terrific lesson and also then perhaps motivate some support and assistance through peer support. It's Yeah, yeah although there's some confidentiality issues. Right. So, for example, this um, several weeks ago around the holidays, I was approached by a student who's in ninth grade at a local high school who had learned about our program when she was in middle school right. and she's in a, a leadership class and you know, that was her vision to see if they could buddy up. Um, but like I said, there's confidentiality issues. We approached people at a private school locally. Right. And there was concern among the faculty that um, that their students would be exposed to things that they shouldn't be exposed to. And, and you know, maybe even illnesses. And um, so there's this whole still stigma yeah. Illness. Yes. Yeah. You know that is um, incorrect. And and demonstrates a lack of empathy. <laughs> well, yeah. So uh, yeah. But, I mean, but and and yeah. that particular concern was relative to the parents. You right. know what are what are the parents going to say? And so we we have a long way to go as a society. Interesting. Interesting. Um, if people want to find out more about your organization and make a contribution, the best place for them to go would be your website. Is that true? Uh, yes. And that's www.aacy.org. Do I have that right? That is correct. Okay. 
Well, Connie, we're coming to the end of our time together, and I'd like to close by reading a poem on your website. Uh, and I'm going to see if I can get through it without choking up. I found it very moving and um, really, in my mind, cuts to the heart of uh, oh, what the heart of the is caregiver. about. Yes, the heart of a caregiver. Yeah. I don't know if you, you probably don't know it by we heart. We have it on our wall. <laughs> Actually, I copied it. It's it's beautiful, written and by one of our kids. Can you Can you read it? Do you have it there in front of you? Oh, me? I don't have it in front of let's, me, no. Let me read it. Let me read it for our listeners. It's Like I said, it's very moving. Um, it's the heart of a caregiver. I'll be the one to listen. I'll be the one to help you remember. I'll be the one to be your guide. I'll be the one right by your side. I'll be the hands when you're all tied up. I'll be the eyes when your sight is blurred. I'll be the lips when words aren't enough. I'll be your strength when life gets tough. I'll always give to you when yours run out. I'll always talk to fill the silence. I'll always catch your tears when they fall. I'll always answer when you call. I'll never let you bear the pain alone. Wow, can't get through this. (laughs) I'll never give up on you when you're in doubt. I'll never let you forget your kindness and grace. I'll never forget your lovely face. Wow. (laughs) Wow, what a poem. Written by Sophia. Tell us about Sophia. So she's a, a, she's graduated high school now, mm-hmm. um, and um, she and her family have uh, overcome um, many many challenges. And um, in in our high schools, we're able to do groups and workshops uh, where the kids are in clusters. And she happened to be in a school where um, where. She, there wasn't a cluster. However, I always remember one day she was um, she wanted to make an appointment to um, see her guidance counselor, and and uh, there wasn't really time, and or she wasn't allotted time. And so another girl who came along um, said, "You can have my appointment." And um, some of our kids are good advocates for others. But it's hard for them to advocate for themselves. Ah, yes. So powerful. So powerful. Well, Connie, we know that you too have the heart of a caregiver. And I'd like to thank you for caring for those who give care, which is so fundamentally important. And thank you for your leadership and shining a light on the lives of those youth and caregivers and creating a support system for them been a real pleasure to talk with you today. Well, thank you, David. And uh, I look forward to having uh, more people join with us because certainly um, we can't do it alone. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.